I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Because you have been so kindly listening to or watching Slow Mo, I have had the opportunity over the last three years to at least once a week meet an incredible, incredible human being with a set of values or thoughts or experiences that taught me something and hopefully gave you the opportunity to slow down and reflect on something that you normally don't give the time to. Of those, some that came early in our work with Slow Mo were conversations that didn't get as many viewers or downloads as they deserve because basically some people joined later. They were very, very successful at the time they came out, but now that Slow Mo exploded into the numbers of listeners and viewers that we have today, some of the new joiners may have not seen them. So... Munir, myself, and Vlade, the tiny team that actually gives you slow-mo, have come together and decided maybe we should sprinkle three or four of those conversations into December and January as a form of rewind, if you want, so that you get a chance to enjoy them. This is also our way of slowing down a little bit further, looking back into something that was wonderful instead of constantly aiming for the new. I hope you will enjoy every one of those, and I hope at the same time you will give yourself the opportunity to reflect back on all of the other conversations that we have enjoyed together in the last three years, and perhaps look back at some of them and enjoy those too. I'm almost certain you will enjoy those. They were not only some of my favorite conversations on slow-mo, but some of my favorite conversations period. Today, I want to bring to you Nir Eyal. Nir is an Israeli-born American author who focuses his work at the intersection between business, technology, and psychology. Two books, one of them was called Hooked, and Hooked was all about how to teach companies that want to interact with customers online, how to keep the customers coming back. The other book, though, which is one of my absolute favorite books of all time, was Indistractable. And Indistractable was an approach to using what Hooked has taught us in order to focus as individuals and make sure that nothing, including the trickery of the online world, would distract us from what it is that we set our minds to. Near is not just an author. Nier taught at the Stanford Graduate School. He is an entrepreneur who started two tech companies and sold them successfully. Indistractable received critical acclaim and won many, many awards, including the OWL, the Outstanding Works of Literature Award. He was named the best business and leadership book of the year by Amazon. 
and one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible, the global and mail called Indistractable, the best business book of 2019. Well, I have to agree, it's an unmissable piece of literature. I think it would change your perspective of how much you are in charge of your ability to focus and get things done. But one of the main reasons why I wanted to include this episode in the Rewind series is because of how generous Nier has been through the conversation and the time that we spent together. He truly did not leave anything behind. Every single question that I could think of, he answered generously. We were laughing all through it. What a wonderful, generous amazing human being. Once again, I'm very grateful for having hosted him, for getting to know him, and I'm absolutely certain you will enjoy my conversation back from March 2021 with Nir Eyal. I have literally pages and pages of notes uh, of what, what I want to How talk about. How much time do we have? Let's do it. Exactly. Before I start, I just want to to you know, make an uh, an announcement to our listeners. You know, a brilliant alert, as I always call it. This is a brilliant. I know for certain because I've followed Nier's work for a while. This is going to be a brilliant conversation. No pressure, Nier. No, no pressure. I mean, uh, <laughs> but, but but it is so clear and so concise, and I I really think it's so useful and so timely, especially actually in times of lockdown. I want to start by reminding people. So Nier's uh, first book was called Hooked. It was about building products that would create habits in people. And almost as if you repented and went from the dark side to the light, you then wrote Indistractable, which was basically the guide for all of us to resist those products, right? How did that journey happen? Yeah, well, it's not, it's not the same products. Uh-huh. So the products that I wrote Hooked for are the kind of products we want to use more. We want to build good habits, right? So the idea behind Hooked was, can we steal the secrets behind what makes all sorts of products so sticky? Uh When you think about gaming products or uh, social networks or uh, the news or whatever it might be, how can we steal their psychological secrets so that we can make healthy behaviors habit forming? And that's exactly what's happened in the six years or so since Hooked was published. All kinds of companies in every conceivable industry have used the Hook model to get people hooked for good. Kahoot uses the hook model to get kids hooked onto learning. Fitbod uses the hook model to get people hooked to exercise. Uh, I even invested recently in a company called Cutback Coach that uses the hook model to get people to cut back, uh, uh, to become unhooked on their consumption of alcohol. So we (laughs) can actually use the hook model for good. Now, sometimes there are products out there that are designed to be so engaging that sometimes they become a distraction. And that's what indistractable is for. So if hooked was about how to build good habits, indistractable is about how to break bad habits. But I did not call the book unhooked. My publisher thought I should, (laughs) but I didn't because I did not want to negate the message of hooked because I really do believe we can have our cake and eat it too. I'm very tech positive. And I'm not saying that technology is somehow evil and it's melting your brain and that we are out of control and it's addicting everyone. That's silly. That's nonsense. That we can actually find ways to get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. I'm with you on that. I always say technology is a double-edged sword, right? So, you, you know, you use it right and it works for you. You use it wrong and it will hurt you. And there is nothing inherently 
wrong with technology, but I, I believe it's been more and more technology giants' practices, I would say, that maybe are making technology a little smarter than we are. I mean, when you really think about it, the engines behind a, an Instagram or a Facebook or, you know, which really can monitor every tiny move that I have on their application and then somehow sort of bias me slowly from one side to the other. It requires indistractable, if you ask me, to be able to overcome those. What I wanted to do was to empower people. That it's exactly as you said. It's if you know how to use these tools correctly, they're incredibly empowering. They're they're wonderful. What what I don't like out there today is that there's this this myth being perpetuated that somehow their algorithms are controlling your mind. It's hijacking your brain. It's addicting you. And that type of language has been found to be actually not only inaccurate, scientifically untrue, but also damaging. Because what this tells people is exactly what the tech companies want them to believe, which is that there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> okay. Right? Uh -huh. That these products, they're so addictive, they're so persuasive, they're so hijacking your brain, there's nothing you can do. And look, I know all their secrets. I know how they got you hooked. I wrote the book hooked. <laughs> I know <laughs> their tricks. And I'm telling you, their techniques are good. They're not that good. Yeah, they're not right? bulletproof. This isn't mind control. No, we are so much more powerful than they are if we believe we are. The problem is that so many people out there think, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm addicted. My kids, their brains are hijacked. And what people do when they believe they're helpless, you know what they do? Nothing. Because they think there's nothing they can do. It's called learned helplessness. Absolutely. And we see this all the time, by the way. Distraction is not just about technology. There's all kinds of distractions out there. You know, I, I just went on a pretty serious health kick. I used to be clinically obese, and now I'm in the best shape of my life. I lost, no a, way. Yeah, I lost a bunch of weight. No way. Hold on, hold on. Let's stop this podcast here and focus on this. <laughs> <laughs> we need all of your secrets. <laughs> distraction is, here's the thing, because distraction is not just about technology. Food can be a distraction. A television can be a distraction. Your work can be a distraction. Anything can be a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. So really how we control our time and attention is how we control our life. And so this is a much bigger conversation than just technology. Distraction has been around forever. Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. So it's really about, it's much bigger than just whatever's in our hand at the moment. It's about how do we do what we say we're going to do in all aspects of our life. I will come back to the fitness bit because uh, I actually have to admit, I have this little, no, I shouldn't say that in public. It's a very tiny belly that I did not used to have before the lockdown. And, you know, in an interesting way, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, what happened here? It's not that I don't go to the gym. I think it's been that my habits at the gym have changed a little bit. And so I let that little guy creep. So we're going to come back to fitness, but maybe we should start with the general concept. You refer to uh, crazia is what you normally talk about. You know, the idea that we do things that are sort of against our best interest or better judgment. Exactly. And this is, this is from the Greek. Uh, this is what Plato called akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. And I bring that up because it's evidence that distraction is nothing new. That even though we tend to blame the latest technology or whatever corporation that might be trying to, to change our behavior, this has always been the case. Distraction has always been with us. What's different now is that if you are looking for a distraction, it's easier than ever to find. 
But of course, complaining about this stuff outside of us is pretty futile, right? Are we going to tell Netflix, hey, Netflix, your shows are really entertaining. Please stop making them so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Apple, your devices are so user-friendly. Please stop that. Uh, food companies, you know, your food is so delicious. Please make it less tasty. That doesn't make any sense, right? The price of progress is that we live in a world with so many good things in it. And so it behooves us to understand how do we do what we say we're going to do? How do we act in our best interest? Because today, the problem is not that we don't know what to do. Right? Maybe previous generation could say, oh, I just didn't know how to lose weight. I didn't know how to have better relationships. I didn't know how to excel at my job. Today, we don't have that excuse anymore. Who, who doesn't basically know how to lose weight? Do we have to buy a diet book to tell us to eat right and exercise? We know. <laughs> who doesn't know that if you want to have better relationships with your family, you have to be fully present as opposed to constantly looking at your phone at the dinner table? Who doesn't know that if you want to do better at your job, if you, if you want to you know, grow your business, you have to do the work as opposed to procrastinating. You have to do what's required, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do. We know. We know all this stuff. The question is not what to do. The question is why don't we do what we already know we should do? Because what we're missing today, and I think the reason this is the skill of the century, is because there's no longer a shortage of information. It's that we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. That is incredible when you really think about it. Because I, I believe, I've never thought of it this way, by the way. You know, I, I sometimes think that there is a flood of information that it becomes now almost the opposite. It's hard to know what to do because there is too much information. But when you, when you think about it, any of that information that you will get is useful. And yet, we don't actually use it. I mean, yeah, you could get someone saying, eat 7,000 calories, but, but burn eight. And you get someone else saying, no, no, hold on, you know, cut on carbs, right? Both of them will work. It's just, you know, a matter of choosing to ded dedicate yourself to one of the, or the other and, and knowing what you actually want and acknowledging that this is better for you. And sticking with it. Right. That's the problem is that if you quit doing whatever it is you're doing in life, whatever goal you have, whatever ambition, if you quit, you will fail. Agreed? That is the 100% <laughs> no doubt about it way to fail at something is to quit. So what happens is even when people have the right methodology, they fail because they fall off track. So they don't even know if the methodology would work for them, <laughs> and which is why these businesses, you know, productivity, diet advice, all this stuff, why they keep cranking out books saying pretty much the same thing is because people don't finish. <laughs> they keep getting distracted. Yeah, exactly. Or they do it wrong or they, as you rightly said, they stop doing it. I mean, often in work, people will tell me things like, you know, no, no, hold on. We tried this before it didn't work. And I go like, have you ever thought that you may have not tried enough of it or that you may have not tried it right? Because, you know, for others, it works. You know, you can see that there is something there that points that it's possible. So your method is very structured. And I, you know, I could actually cite it to everyone right now, but I'd rather hear it from you. You say there are four strategies. No, no, please do. This is great. <laughs> I would love to hear you try. You know, there are four strategies. We want to, we have internal triggers. We have external triggers, right? Between them, we actually need to make the time and then we need to make the pact, you say. And I, I find that to be spot on. And somehow near the way you say it, 
I go like, am I stupid? Why didn't I write those down before <laughs> and stick to them? I mean, in reality, I have to admit to you, I'm quite effective. You know, I, I'm an author. I have a slow-mo, this podcast, you know, I have my own startup. I have, you know, my speaking engagements. I work out, I have relationships and, you know, I do a lot of stuff in my life. And when I, when every time I refer back to your work, I say it's because I've adopted at least, you know, enough of your methods. Now, I want to start maybe in a slightly different order, if you don't mind. I want to start with the external triggers because everyone will say, yeah, you know what? I'm distracted because life is distracting me. And I know that your concept basically says, no, hold on. It's not just external triggers. Don't play the victim on me. But let's start with that so that we can lay that to rest. Someone will come to me and say, oh, my phone rang and that's why I had to pick it up. And when I picked it up, I ended up losing half an hour. That's why I didn't finish what I wanted to finish. What would you say to that? That is, can certainly be a source of distraction. L let me just back up one step before and actually just define what is distraction. It's really important that we understand what that word even means. I didn't understand it. It seems like one of those basic words that everybody thinks they understand, but you know, a good way to test if you understand what that word means is to see if you know the antonym, do you know the opposite of that word? So most people, if you ask them, what's the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you focus, right? The opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not really true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. I love that. that. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-M, that spells action. So distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action we take. So traction is defined as any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is of course, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, things that you are not doing with intent, things that move you away from your values and away from becoming the kind of person you wanna become. So this is really, really important, this dichotomy, because I believe anything can be traction and anything can be distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought, forethought. So how many times have you sat at your desk, or I'll, I'll take me, for example, before I wrote this book, I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm gonna get started on this big task. I've been procrastinating on something that I've been meaning to do. I'm gonna get started right now. Here I go, I'm gonna do it right now. But first, let me just check some email. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just scroll that Slack channel just to catch up on office, you know, office gossip and stuff. Let me just check on what's going on or uh, let me do that one easy thing on my to-do list, right? And I would justify it to myself saying, well, I'm being productive, right? I'm doing work-related stuff. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the important and hard work that moves us forward in life. Mm. So anything can be a distraction. Even work stuff can be a distraction. And in fact, that's the worst kind because it, people don't realize that they have been tricked by distraction into checking email or whatever else, as opposed to working on the stuff they really need to work on. So that would be an example of distraction. Conversely, anything can be traction. So I don't buy this chicken little tech critic narrative that, oh, technology's hijacking your brain, it's addictive, it's melting our minds. BS, that's not true. All this stuff is great, right? Social media is wonderful. These technologies are amazing. If we use them according to our schedule 
and according to our values and nobody else's, right? So the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. Dorothy Parker said that. There's nothing morally inferior to playing a video game versus watching a, a football match on TV. They're both pastimes. Do whatever you want with your time, but do it with intent. So now we have traction and we have distraction. Now we can get to your question around where do these triggers fit in? Hold on, my question was too early. My question was too early. <laughs> I needed to set the stage just so everyone understands the difference. I love the way you, you say it because in my mind, you know, I think in physics and traction as opposed to distraction, distraction is to spin your wheels in that way, right? It's like you, you're putting in effort and you're thinking you're doing stuff, but the wheels don't have traction. They don't pull you forward. They don't get you to where you want to be. And that's really a very, very interesting definition. It's like putting the car in reverse, right? right? Yeah. It's running real fast in the wrong direction. <laughs> exactly. And I think the idea to highlight that also you're distracted by good stuff, like email. Sure. Is, yeah, you may be making progress, but it's tiny progress versus where you want to be when you have other priorities to make. And so you're saying there are four forces. Go ahead. Right. So now we got traction, we got distraction. Now we have to ask what prompts us to take these actions. Because remember, traction and distraction are actions. The last six letters of both words, A-C-T-I-O-N, spell action. So we've got internal triggers and external triggers. So external triggers, this is what you said earlier, right? This is what everybody tends to blame uh, are, are their distractions on. It's the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction and oftentimes distraction. And that is clearly part of the problem. But turns out, studies find, it's only 10% of the problem. Studies actually find that only 10% of the time that you check your phone, for example, do we check our phones because of an external trigger? Only 10% of the time. Mm. So what's the other 90% of the time? The other 90% of the time are not the external triggers, but rather they are the internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. So internal triggers, one of the biggest lessons I learned from writing this book, the five years of research that it took to write this book, was that the vast majority of distraction begins from within, hmm. right? That is the vast majority of distraction. It's discomfort, it's uh, uncertainty, loneliness, fatigue, boredom, anxiety, stress. That is the leading cause of distraction. And so now we have the four points of this compass. Now, we, as you said el eloquently before, we can go around these four points, mastering the internal triggers, that's step one, making time for traction, that's step two, Step three is hacking back those external triggers. And then finally, as a last line of defense, we can prevent distraction with pacts. You know, this isn't stuff that I made up on my own. I made up the model, right? I put it all together. But many of these techniques, I'm sure people already do some of them. All of them, however, are based on years of research, that there's so much great research out there in academia that was never, you know, never seen the light of day. I have over 30 pages of citations to peer-reviewed studies. It was really important to me to have a book that's based on good science. And it turns out if you use these techniques in concert, so even though you might have one or two of these techniques that we might talk about in a, in a minute here, when you use all four together, mm -hmm. that's when it becomes greater than the sum of its parts. That's when it really becomes effective. And anyone can become indistractable using these four techniques. But there is a lot of habit 
making here, right? So I think, again, a warning for the listeners, you know, you're not going to listen to near here and then find yourself indestructible. I think you're going to have to take a few notes. I definitely recommend reading the book. And then you have to put it into practice. Were you ever, you know, as distractible as we are near or were you? Oh my gosh. Always. Yeah. Let me tell you, I wrote the book for me. (laughs) (laughs) These are the best books ever. Oh my gosh. You know, like the fact that other people read it and enjoy it, that's great, but that's the icing on the cake. The reason I wrote the book was because I was crazy distracted that in fact, the more quote unquote successful I became in my business life, the more distracted I became and the less productive I became right? Because now I had all these emails and uh, client calls and meetings and uh, people wanted my attention so that it was more and more difficult to do the things that made me successful in the first place. And so I found, you know, whether it was with my relationships with my daughter, for example, when I was with her, whether it was my health, I started gaining weight. Uh, I wasn't as productive in my writing because I, I couldn't get this under control. And so that's when I really decided, hey, I need to figure this out for myself. So that's when I embarked on these five years of research to figure it out. And where I started, by the way, was with kind of the standard advice that we hear out there of, you know, just throw away your cell phone, right? Some professor in an ivory tower telling us, don't use social media. Meanwhile, they don't have social media accounts, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't need a professor telling me not to use social media unless they struggle with it themselves. So, we, you know, many of us can't stop using these tools. We can't stop using email. We can't stop using social media because our jobs depend on it. And so I really wanted a positive approach because here's the thing. Even when I took this advice, I actually got myself a flip phone from Alibaba, you know, one of these like 1990s things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I took the advice and I, okay, I disconnected, you know, uh, digital detox, no apps, uh, no internet connection. And I still got distracted, right? Because I would sit <laughs> down on my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to get to work without any distraction. But there's that book on the shelf I've been meaning to check out. <laughs> or, oh, you know what? The trash, I need to take out the trash or my desk is too cluttered. Let me do that. Or, you know, I would find distraction because I didn't get to the root cause of the problem. Many of those are, you know, the book has always been there, but you teach us that it's the internal trigger, right? Some kind of emotion, some kind of psychological trigger gets you to say, "Mm, maybe I should reach out for that book now. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so this this is probably the most important revelation of the book for me. I agree. Yeah, is is that, you know, I kept blaming the stuff outside of me and... Truly, when we look at the studies, when you look at the research, distraction, procrastination, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. Your brain isn't somehow broken. It's simply an inability to deal with discomfort in a healthy way. That's what it is. It's simply that we haven't learned the skills, the tools to deal with these uncomfortable emotional states in a way that moves us towards traction rather than distraction. So, what we have to remember is that time management requires pain management. Time management requires pain management. Whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. If we are looking for escape, if we are getting distracted, it's all about this central common cause of our inability to deal with discomfort. Procrastination distraction is an emotion regulation problem. But the good news is, we can all learn these skills. There's tons of research out there that has highlighted some very simple techniques that anyone can use to start mastering these internal triggers so that they don't become our masters. 
So let me, you know, think of a few examples just for our listeners. I'm sitting in lockdown. I feel lonely. I reach out for my phone and switch on Instagram. This is me unable to deal with my loneliness in a, in a healthy way and sort of trying to drown it in some kind of distraction that makes me feel less lonely. Are these the kinds of emotions you're talking about? If you wanted to do something else with that time. Uh-huh. So on my schedule, I have time for social media because social media is awesome. You know how many people, I mean, think about how awful it would have been if we had to go through this pandemic 30 years ago. Imagine if it wasn't COVID-19. Imagine if it was COVID-90. Let's say the year 1990, <laughs> the world was hit with this pandemic. Can you imagine how much worse <laughs> it would be without these technologies? I mean, these things are godsend that we have these amazing technologies that let us, you know, you're in Dubai, I'm in Singapore, people are listening all over the world to this technology that we're using for free yeah. <laughs> to connect with each other. It's amazing. And so we shouldn't bemoan and blame the technology. These are tools that we use. It's about how we use them. And so connecting with your friends on Instagram, as you mentioned, is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with it. Thank goodness for Instagram. It's about why and when we use it. Are we using it to escape having to work on that big project? Are we using it because we said we were going to be with our kids, but our kids are driving us nuts and we can't cope with that. So we need to turn to a drink or a smoke or a piece of chocolate cake or a Facebook scroll. Are we escaping the discomfort when we didn't plan to? Or do we have a time in our day when we say, hey, that's my social media time then there's nothing wrong with it because I'm doing it based on my values and my schedule, not somebody else's and not because I'm looking for emotional escape from that discomfort that I can't handle otherwise. But then if it is interrupting or if it is distracting me, what you advise is to acknowledge the sensation. And I don't remember the exact term that you use, something like surf. Surf the urge. Surf the urge. Yeah, I think. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. So basically what you're saying is when you're reaching out to that phone, remember that this is a psychological discomfort and your advice then would be what? Right. So what we want to do is to have several arrows in our quiver. We want to have all kinds of tools ready for us to grab when we get distracted, starting with mastering these internal triggers. So with this step one, remember there's four key steps. Within step one, there's about a dozen different things you can do. So what I want to do is to arm people with whatever techniques they find works best for them. One of the techniques that works best for me comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. This is a well-documented, well-studied methodology. And one of the techniques that comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy is called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule acknowledges- I love this. You, you like this one? I use this all the time. I love the, the, it. Yeah. yeah, it's great. And I did. I can't take credit for it, but I, I'm trying to popularize it because it is so effective. Basically, what the 10-minute rule says that instead of telling yourself no, you want to tell yourself not yet. And this actually comes out of addiction research that we're starting to understand that addiction is much more complicated than just the chemical we're putting in our body. That in fact, what we're finding is that the way addiction takes hold is not because of the sensation itself. For example, if you talk to smokers, the vast majority of smokers don't actually enjoy the smoking. When they stop and reflect on it, it's stinky, it's expensive, it's gross. Like they don't even like the smell of it. They don't even get a buzz from it anymore, but they keep doing it. Why? It turns out that saying no backfires. That when you tell yourself not to do something, 
that when you tell yourself strict abstinence, right? It's like pulling on a rubber band. When you pull on a rubber band and you pull, 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 eventually you can't pull anymore. When you let go of it, it doesn't just go back to where it started. No, it ricochets across the room. And so what happens when we tell ourselves, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't, okay, fine. That relief of that tension of telling ourselves not to do something is itself pleasurable. Ah, finally, I get to smoke, right? The only way I can relieve the discomfort of telling myself no is to do the very behavior. And so the brain registers that as relieving the discomfort of wanting something so bad because you told yourself not to do it. So abstinence can backfire. So telling yourself no is not always the best way. What you want to do instead, instead of saying no, is to say not yet. So what we want to do, and this works just as well for telling yourself not to check email right now or not to eat that piece of chocolate cake if you're on a diet or smoke that cigarette, it doesn't matter. It works for every distraction. What you want to tell yourself is to say, look, I can give in to that distraction. I'm not telling myself no. I'm just going to say not yet. I'm going to give into that distraction in 10 minutes, right? That's where the 10 minute rule comes from. Not for 10 minutes, in 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> so somebody misunderstood one time and said, oh, so I can smoke for 10 minutes? No, no, no. In 10 minutes, not for 10 minutes. So what you do is, so this happens to me all the time when I'm writing, okay? I've written two bestsellers, countless articles. Writing is never easy, okay? It never becomes a habit for me. It's always hard work. It's always a slog. But all I want to do when I'm writing is Google something or check email or scroll Facebook or whatever. I just want to do anything else to take my mind off of the discomfort of the writing because it's hard. So what do I do? I tell myself, okay, I'm going to wait for 10 minutes before I do whatever that distraction might be. So I take out my phone. I say, set a timer for 10 minutes. I put the phone down and now I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand right? Do whatever it is I plan to do with my time, get back to the writing or whatever it might be. Or I want to do what's called surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that our uncomfortable sensations are like waves. They crest and then they subside, just like a wave, even though in the moment it feels like it's going to last forever. They never do. So if we can just sit there for a few minutes and acknowledge, okay, I'm feeling this internal trigger. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling stressed. Is anybody going to like this essay? Is it any good? What are people going to think of it? Where is that coming from? Oh, okay. I'm talking. I, I feel these things because I really want this essay to be well done. I really want people to benefit from it. I think it's important. So I'm reframing that conversation I'm having with myself as opposed to ruminating on the bad aspects. I'm getting to the core of why it's happening. And so I show you how to have that conversation with yourself. And what you will find is by the time those 10 minutes are up, Okay. By the time your, your alarm rings, what you will find is nine times out of 10, that sensation is you're gone. You're not interested anymore. Yeah, yeah. You're back to work. You're back doing the thing you said you were going to do. And if at the end of those 10 minutes, you want to give in, go for it. Have the piece of chocolate cake or whatever the case might be. But nine times out of 10, it's not going to happen. So what you do over time, the 10 minute rule becomes the 12 minute rule, the 15 minute rule. And you're building your capacity to be able to delay gratification, which is really the skill we're, we're building here. That is an amazing advice. I mean, I, I actually normally do it with writing. Writing is never easy, even though I enjoy it tremendously. I call it the one hour rule. So I always write in chunks of one hour at a time. I set my timer and I sit. Sometimes I don't write a single word and 15 minutes in, I'm like, why are you sitting here? Because the timer says there are 45 minutes more to go. And then very quickly you start to write. You know, you're like, I'm here anyway. Let me just, you know, use the time 
productively until the timer goes off, which I think is a very good segue into your second strategy. Your second strategy is really around achieving traction itself. It's not about avoiding distraction. It's like more focused on traction. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So it's about making time for traction. So one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that they can't tell me what is traction in their day. And you can't call something distraction. You can't say you got distracted by something unless you know what it distracted you from. So when I talk to folks and they tell me, oh, you know, I plan to do this and I want to do that, but uh, the world's so distracting these days and my boss wanted this and my kids wanted that and you see what's on Twitter and the news, I can't get anything done. But when you ask them, okay, but what did you plan to do with your time, right? What was on your schedule? It's white, it's blank, (laughs) right? Maybe a meeting here and a, a dentist appointment there. But, you know, when it comes down to how did you want to spend your time, Most people don't keep a calendar and those who do keep a calendar don't keep what's called a time box calendar, which has been shown in countless studies, literally thousands of studies have shown that this is one of the most effective things you can do for your personal productivity. Psychologists call it setting an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. It's as simple as that. And it's incredibly effective. The problem is that most people don't do this. Instead, they run their life on a to-do list. And running your life with a to-do list is probably one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. People don't realize how toxic to-do lists are. Part of the reason they're so toxic, there are several reasons, is that they convince you of your own inadequacy. They teach you to not believe in yourself. Here's what happens. You know, to-do lists are endless, right? There is no constraint to a to-do list. You just add more and more and more tasks. And as long as I've been doing this research, I have never in all this time found anyone who finishes everything on their to-do list every day. That person doesn't exist. It's like a unicorn. (laughs) It's just (laughs) mythical. And yet how many of us keep using this method I did for years that is not working for us. We keep banging our head against the wall. And so here's what happens with when you run your life on a to-do list. And to be clear, I'm not saying that writing things down that you need to get done is a bad idea. That's a good yes. idea. What's yeah. a bad idea is waking up in the morning. It's to work from it directly. Exactly. Yeah. Getting to work and saying, oh, what should I do? Let me look at my to-do list. If you do that, as opposed to looking at your schedule, you have already lost. Because what happens to folks is they never finish their to-do list. They get home at the end of the day. They're stressed out. They're tired. All they want to do is relax. And they still got in their heads all these things they didn't accomplish. And so not only does that ruin the remaining leisure time they have because they're not really fully present with their family, with their kids, whatever it is that they want to do after work, but also when they look at that to-do list and they still haven't finished everything on it, it reinforces your self-image as someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. You are showing yourself that you don't live with integrity, loser, whereas (laughs) people who instead keep what's called a time box calendar and measure themselves not based on how many little boxes did they check off, but rather did they do what they said they were going to do for as long as they said they would without distraction. People who measure themselves that way, working on whatever it is they said they were going to do for as long as they said they would without distraction, when that becomes the only metric, notice I didn't say finishing a task. It's not about finishing. It's about working without distraction. And what's incredible, the kicker here, is that the people who use that technique 
have been shown to actually finish, finish more of course. than the yeah. people who use the to-do list, right? Because as you said, yeah. you know, writers do this all the time. You know this, right? Like I'm waiting for the muse. I'm waiting for inspiration <laughs> to strike, right? That's not going to happen. <laughs> you have to put your butt yeah, yeah. It is a in job. the chair, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, and you have to put in the hours. I mean, it's really interesting. I never knew it had a name, but I, I keep a religious to-do list, but I never use it to do anything. You know, one of my rituals every morning after I finish my meditation reflection time and so on is I turn those into time slots. And when the day is full, it's full, right? So I need to sit and write for an hour. It goes from 9 to 10 a.m., and I will sit from 9 to 10 a.m. And yes, I will tell myself I would hope to write three pages or whatever in that hour. But if I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm sitting there. And if I write five, that's fantastic. The idea is, unless you, you know, if you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to read email, I'm going to, you know, clean my email inbox. Good luck. That's like a 500 hour task, right? It just doesn't work that way. You tell yourself, I'm going to do 15 minutes email and I'm going to do the top three or top five, right? And that's it. Very, very different. Right. And of course, you make adjustments, right? From week to week, when you make a time box calendar, you adjust it. You say, you know what? Oh, I, I only got through a very small part of my email inbox. I really need more time for it. No problem. You make that adjustment for the week ahead or the time slot in the week ahead, but not in the moment, right? We don't want to do that in the moment because that's when we actually get distracted from the next thing we plan to do. Senior, I mean, of course, because you're very professional and very productive, you know, you talk about work, but this also includes personal stuff right? I want to spend time with my daughter and it's going to take an hour and a half for me to catch her and then to have the conversation and for Zoom to fail us a little bit and, and so on, right? And that needs to be planned in the calendar. I need to give myself time for my workout. I need to give myself time for my rest and so on and so forth, right? So these are important things to be included as well. Right. So we, we talk about values in the book about, you know, values are attributes of the person you want to become values or attributes of the person you want to become. So what you want to ask yourself is, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And we have these three life domains. You are at the center of these three life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people, you can't uh, enhance your organization, your workplace, you have to take care of yourself first. So first thing we do with our weekly calendar is to make sure we put time for ourselves. Uh -huh. What does that include? Well, whatever your values are based on. If physical health is important, right? Everybody says, oh, the most important thing is your health. Well, do you have time in your calendar to take care of your health, right? If Great that question. workout is not going to happen if it's not scheduled. Uh, yeah. Your bedtime is not going to happen if it's not in your calendar. For years, I would tell my daughter, oh, you have to go to bed. It's your bedtime. But I was a hypocrite. I didn't have a bedtime. Did I not know <laughs> that sleep is important? Who doesn't know sleep is important? Really? We need to read another book to tell us sleep is important? We know. <laughs> but we don't put that time in the calendar. It's got to be there. But whether it's if personal education and growth is important, do you have time to read? Is that in your schedule? Meditate, pray, paint, play video games. It doesn't matter what you want to do with your time. It's not up for me or anybody else to tell you how you should spend your time. It should be according to your values. So you put that time in for yourself first. Then your relationships. Part of the reason we are suffering through a loneliness epidemic these days is because people don't hold time for their important relationships, their friends, their family, their loved ones. We give them whatever scraps of time are left over and it's not enough. It's not good enough. We need to plan that time. And then finally, for our work domain, that's the last of the three domains, work falls into two categories. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. 
Reactive work is reacting to the emails, reacting to the messages, reacting to the meetings and, and phone calls. That's reactive work. Some of our day, of course, has to be spent doing reactive work. But just as important, if not even more important, is the reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only get done without distraction. The planning, the strategizing, the thinking can only happen when we work without distraction. So what I implore people to do, if you're a knowledge worker, right? If you're a white collar worker and you have some latitude in making your schedule, you have got to put at least some part of your day for that reflective work. Because if you don't, your life and your career will run real fast in the wrong direction. As we talked about earlier, you have to have that time to reflect. So this is how we build our time box calendar. And then once we have that, we have a few magical things that happen. One, we have something that we can revise, right? We can iterate on that schedule week over week and improve it over time to make it easier to follow. So you say, oh, I want to write more. Well, it turns out I like to write more in the morning versus the evening. Great. No problem. Switch it up. Adapt it for your needs. The second thing that happens that's really magical is that now we have a physical artifact that we can share with other people in our life. So we can show it to our boss and say, hey, boss, I've got my time box calendar here. You see this list of stuff that you asked me to do? I can't seem to find a place on my calendar without removing something else. Help me prioritize. Brilliant. People, I'm telling you, this will change your life. Your boss will worship the ground you walk on because they don't know what you're doing all day. <laughs> they would love to know. So yeah. show them that calendar, get their feedback to say, hey, look, this is more important than this. Let's swap it out on your calendar. You don't need to do this, but that's actually more important. This is called schedule syncing. And not only works with your boss, it works incredibly well with the other stakeholders in your life, like your, your domestic partner, your, your wife, your husband, your kids. It's an incredibly uh, fruitful yeah. practice. I love that. It is brilliant. I have to repeat this so that nobody misses the point. Did you hear near brilliant when you said you put yourself first? First is a very important keyword. Actually, this completely flipped my life upside down. So my time with Aya will go in my calendar first. Okay. And I actually, I used to make a statement when I was a chief business officer of Google X that if Larry Page asked for that time, I will say, hold on, I have to text Aya first because this to me matters. My workout time matters. You know, I worked out in the morning. I didn't want breakfast meetings. People were crazy about breakfast meetings for some reason. It's like, I'm grumpy. I haven't even showered yet. Why would we want those, right? And I think the idea is first, you put those things first. One staggering statistic that I got from you at a point in time here is that 41% of the tasks we put in our day are low value adding, you call them. You know, so these are not the tasks that are important at all. Right. They're the easy things or the urgent things, but not the important things that we really need yeah. to work on. And, and the reason people do this, by the way, is that people love the reactive work. I always get this excuse from people when they hear this, not, not always, but some people who are trying to avoid doing it of uh, what if my boss needs me, right? I need to be on call. I can't just think I need, I, 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 my boss is constantly, you know, he might send me an email. What if, what if she needs me? And of course, some portion of your day needs to be available. But what boss is not going to understand if you sit down with your boss and say, look, to do my best work, I need time to think. And to think, I need to work without distraction. So I'm not saying all day, but some portion of your day has to be protected for that type of work, just as 
if you are going to have a meeting with somebody very important. If Larry Page called you up and said, I need a meeting with you, well, you would make time for them, right? Exactly. If, if Oprah called you, you would make time for her, right? I would. And yet, Absolutely. why don't we keep our commitments to ourselves? Yeah. We're the most important person in our life. And yet the things that we need for proper care and maintenance, exercise, rest, proper nutrition, prayer, meditation, whatever it is, that somehow comes at the expense of everything else. Yeah. And you'll be surprised how little left would be if you don't include that. Again, one of the staggering, staggering statements, you say it so easily, but I once heard you on a speech say a hundred emails a day multiplied by two minutes each plus two meetings at an hour each, that leaves you one and a half hours for everything else. For everything else. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy when you think about it, because you start your day thinking that you have eight hours of work you suddenly realize that all of it has gone into two meetings and email, right? And that is so, so shocking when you really think about it. I also will have to say, again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm being a fanboy here, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is fantastic. Keep it coming. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I admire is how you apply this to your personal life as well. So, you know, it's actually really valuable to tell your boss, for example, I need time to think. But I'll tell you, tell your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, hey, I write between 9 and 11 a.m. and I love you dearly and I would like to hug you and I would like to laugh and everything, but between 9 and 11 I'm writing or between this time and that time I'm working out. And I think those kinds of clear communication, I think, makes a, a major, major difference. To that point, by the way, because when you say that, it also comes coupled with the fact that not only do you keep time protected and preserved for things to take care of yourself, but also for them. Absolutely. Right? A person who is indistractable is someone people want to do business with. It's someone people want to love. It's someone people want to invest in their relationships. Why? Because they know they are good for their word. I'll tell you a quick anecdote with my wife. So my wife and I met in an economics class in college. And there was this term uh, that we learned in econ class called residual benefactor. That the residual benefactor is the chump that gets whatever is left over when a company is liquidated. So when a company goes out of business, the debt holders get their share, the equity holders get whatever's left after that. And then the last, last people who get whatever's left are the residual benefactors. They get whatever scraps are left over when a company is, is liquidated. And I remember a few years ago before I published Indistractable, when I was struggling with this distraction in my life, my wife turned to me and she said, look, Nir, you have made me the residual benefactor. You have given me whatever scraps of time are left over after everything else in your life has been taken care of. That's not fair. And you know what? She was absolutely right. And today we hold that time. It's very precious. And, and she knows now, I mean, my, my life has changed in every conceivable area of my life. She knows she can count on me that I'm going to be there when I say I will, because it's on my calendar. It's completely improved our relationship. We've been married for 20 years now, believe it or not, and it's completely changed our life. Oh, fantastic. I don't know her, but I know you, and I think it's not a bad idea to be married. No, I'm not going to marry you, but yes, it's not a bad idea to be married to you for hey, 20 years. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So let's go from there to what everyone uses as an excuse then. Because, you know, Yes, you have it in calendar and I, you know, I will tell myself that I will do it, right? But then all of those external distractors come in 
And yeah, you and I know these are actually the easier ones to handle, but I don't think most people know some of the techniques that you can do to make sure that nothing pings and gets your attention and so on. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So there's a lot of very practical things we can do, and and many of them are very basic, right? Things like changing notifications. I devote only one page to it because it's kind of a simple concept, but two-thirds of people with a smartphone, two-thirds of people with a smartphone, never change their notification settings. Yeah. What? (laughs) Can we really say we're getting addicted by our technology when we haven't taken five minutes to turn off those goddamn pings and dings? I mean, it's not that hard, right? Mm -hmm. If we want to, we can do it. You say, oh, but what if somebody needs me? Well, our phones come built with technology to help us prevent getting distracted by technology. Let me give you one quick example that very few people actually utilize, but it's wonderful. Everybody's phone comes, if you have a phone that's been, you know, the last few years, it comes built in with do not disturb while driving. You push one button on your phone. And if someone calls or texts you, they will get an automatically generated reply that says, I can't talk right now. But if this is urgent, text me with the word urgent. And if they send you that word, then the message will come through. So this way you can push do not disturb while driving. They don't need to know if you're driving or not, by the way, you can be at your desk. You put your phone down and if they call you with, oh my goodness, you have to call me right away. Your house is on fire. You need to call me. The message will come through. I've been using this technique for over three years. It's not that urgent. People can wait 15, 20 minutes until you're done with your work block and then you'll call them back. So the technology comes built in with these ways to hack back technology. There's all kinds of ways to do this. I talk about how you can hack back your newsfeed, how you can hack back uh, group chat. There's all kinds of things we can do. Some of the more difficult things to hack back are the ones that involve company culture. So one of the worst distractions out there these days are meetings, right? Especially now that so many of us are working from home, it's become easier. The friction to call a meeting has been reduced. So what happens is when something is easier to do, people do more of it. You do more of it. So it used to be, oh, if we're going to have a meeting, we all need to be in the same location, right? So let's wait until Bill is here and Katie's here and then we'll have the meeting. But now with Zoom, it's wonderful, but we call too many meetings because it's so easy to do. And it turns out, you know what the number one reason people call meetings is? The number one reason people call meetings to hear themselves talk out loud. (laughs) This is why managers at most companies call meetings because they don't want to do the work and the thinking that they need to do on their own. So let's congregate a bunch of people together and we'll do the thinking together. What a gigantic waste of time. So a few rules you can follow to fix this problem, make it a little bit more difficult to call the meeting. Number one, no agenda, no meeting. Okay. This is meeting 101, but over 90% of the meetings that people call have no pre-circulated agenda. It's just, hey, we should brainstorm on this, right? Turns out studies find that brainstorming in groups is a terrible idea. Brainstorming should only happen, and studies confirm this, that teams get much better results when people brainstorm on their own and send the stakeholder their thoughts. Because what tends to happen in group brainstorms, whether online or offline, is that the loudest, highest paid, and most male person dominates the conversation. So we don't brainstorm in meetings. That's not the purpose of a meeting. Meetings have one purpose, and that is to gain consensus. And to gain consensus, we have to do pre-work. So for example, at Amazon, you can't call a meeting unless you have finished a briefing document. 
you need to prepare a written document in paragraph form that is circulated so that we know, hey, I've done the homework. I have thought about this problem. Let's get together to gain consensus that this is what we want to do, knowing what we all know, right? But to call a meeting to just talk it out, terrible idea, huge distraction. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There's all kinds of other ways we can hack back distraction. Let me tell our uh, listeners, so I believe in this 100%, my notification settings is no notifications, just so that you know. Yes, right? I love, amen. I love you. <laughs> yeah, I, I love you all. I want you all to reach out to me. I get thousands of messages every week from readers and listeners to slow-mo and so on. My notification is zero. I don't receive a single notification on any of my devices, desktop, phone. You will never hear my phone ring. Ever. You know, the first thing I do when I buy a new phone is switch it to silent and keep it on silent. I answer on the time when I want to answer because I have a life and a priority. The fact that someone has my number and suddenly feels that they want to talk about Manchester United, that's their problem, <laughs> not mine, right? It's, it, it's important to understand that. Also, uh, the idea of meetings. Uh, so I, I am with you. I think meetings are the worst invention of humanity. <laughs> and, yes. and, and the idea of let's meet to chat, let's meet to update, let's meet to sync. Yes. Oh my oh, God, God, that kills me. <laughs> sync on a message on WhatsApp that I will see or on Slack that I will see at the right time. I also leave my devices behind. I think this was one of your advice. I, I do actually, as a matter of fact, more and more, I, I leave my devices behind for the entire weekend, which I really think is a, is a very, a very strong practice. But, but one that I want you to talk about is the clutter, which I think is also magnificent. So, you know, most of us have so much on our desktop, the physical one, the desktop one, and the phone one. There is so much out there. Is there a way to just make things easier? Yeah, so we do know, studies have found that visual clutter impairs our cognitive performance. We don't think about it, right? But, you know, you look at some folks' uh, desktops, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's a joke. <laughs> it is a joke. Many yeah. people, I mean, they've got these desktops with like a million files. And then you ask them why, well, what if I need to find something? And maybe this is left over from like, old generations of graphical user interface that that's the way it worked. But today you put everything in one folder, you call that folder everything. And if you need to find it, you search for search. it. You don't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> how complex is that? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you know, you think, okay, well, how trivial, big deal. It makes a difference. And of course, this isn't, you don't buy a whole book just to tell you this, but it's one of many, many, many things that we can do to hack back these external triggers. Because when you think about it, no one step is that actually that difficult. Changing notification settings, using do not disturb, you know, having proper meeting practices, using uh, group chat appropriately. On their own, these steps are very, very easy. What happens is people live in constant distraction. They think that's the way it, it always it's has supposed to, be. to be. And it's not yeah. until they take a step back and they say, wait a minute, I can do that. That's easy. I can do this. It's easy. I can do this, 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 and this. And before they know it, they've done 10 different things. And now the cumulative impact is enormous. It's a huge, huge impact. And so you don't have to do everything in the book all at once. What you want to do, however, is do at least one thing from each of these four steps. Have a practice in place when you do feel those internal triggers, those uncomfortable emotional states. What are you going to do? Right? Prepare now so you know what you will do in the future. Plan out your schedule. Make time for traction in your day. Hack back the external triggers. Just a few things you can do. What, what simple thing can you do? It takes you five minutes to hack back an external trigger. 
And then finally, prevent distraction with PACs, about erecting a, a firewall against distraction. And what we find is that when people do one thing from each of these four categories, these, these four strategies, it starts this, this virtuous cycle where they can do a little bit more, a little bit more. And yes. before they know it, their, their life is completely changed. Yeah. So let's take a couple of more minutes to talk about PACs. But for our listeners, you're going to do what Master Nier is going to say. Okay. And then you're going you're gonna to owe him for the rest of your life. Like for the rest of your life, you'll have Nier in your prayers. Because actually, the story, the way you say it from the, was it Greek mythology, I think? And uh, it's now time. You have the tools in your hands. You have apps out there that can help you become more organized. You have, you know, ways to hack through it and so on and so forth. But it's now time to take charge, to tell yourself, I am responsible for this. I'm going to make myself a promise. I'm going to make a pact. And that will change everything. What's the pact, Nia? Okay, so pacts are what we call pre-commitment devices. Pre-commitment devices is when we make a promise with ourselves, with someone else, or with a technology, ironically enough, to make sure that as a last line of defense, as the firewall against distraction, that we don't go off track. And this actually comes, the mythology that you talked about is the story of Odysseus in the Odyssey, written by Homer over 2,500 years ago. This story of this sailor who has to sail his ship past the island of the sirens. Now, the sirens mm -hmm. are these mythical creatures that sing this magical song that any sailor who hears the siren song crashes his ship onto the shore of the sirens island and dies. Now, Odysseus knows about this threat. He knows he might get distracted. So what does he do? He takes precautions. He does something now to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. He tells his crew to put beeswax in their ears so they can't hear the siren song. And he instructs them to bind him to the mast of the ship. And he tells them, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, do not let me go. And you know what? The plan works. He's able to sail his ship past the island of the sirens and return his crew safely home. Now, what does this illustrate to us? That we can all make what today we call a Ulysses Pact by planning ahead. This is the ultimate message of the book is that there is no distraction that we can't overcome if we make plans today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. Because if you wait till the last moment, they're going to get you. If the cigarette is in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the uh, chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If you sleep <laughs> next to your cell phone, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning. You've already lost. You have to prepare today to make sure you don't get distracted tomorrow. So pacts are the last line of defense. It's what we do after we do the first three steps of mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back the external triggers. These packs are the last line of defense. So what do they look like? We have what we call effort packs, price packs, and identity packs. And these packs are pre-commitments. They are steps we take in advance so that in our moment of weakness, we have something that makes us be mindful about what we're doing. So we don't have time to go through all three, but let me just talk about the effort packs because I, I think it's uh, very impactful, <laughs> so to speak. So um, when I was writing this book, one of the things that I noticed, I'm going to get a little personal here, is that my wife and I, our sex life suffered, right? That every night we would go to bed and she would caress her iPad and I would fondle my iPhone and we wouldn't be intimate together. 
Does this sound familiar, people? Does this sound familiar? <laughs> exactly. And yeah, it can be, you know, so many couples, you know, they have uh, televisions in the bedroom and they you know, watch later and later and they don't have time to be together. They don't have time to be intimate. Not only were we not getting enough sleep, which we know is absolutely critical for physiological and psychological well-being, we weren't being intimate. So what did we do? We followed the first three steps. And then this fourth step, the effort pact, here's what we did. I went to the hardware store and I bought us a $10 outlet timer. Now this outlet timer, we plugged into the wall and whatever you plug into this outlet timer will turn on or off at any time of day or night. What did we plug into it? Our internet router. So every night at 10 p.m., our internet shuts off automatically. That's incredible. Could I go back and unplug it and replug it and turn the internet back on? Of course I could. But then I'd have to go under my desk and take it out. It's a, it's a bunch of work. It's effort. So what I did was I inserted effort. I inserted friction in between me and the distraction, something I didn't want to do. So now if the internet shuts off, I have to ask myself, wait a minute, do I really need to keep checking social media and email or can this wait for tomorrow? Do I have other priorities? Do I have other plans? Now we've been doing it for so many years that everybody in our household knows, my daughter, my wife included, everybody knows, oh, 10 o'clock is coming, better shut down soon because the internet's gonna shut down automatically. So that would be an example of an effort pact, this last line of defense against distraction. But again, a word of warning, if you don't do the other steps first, it won't work. Okay, yeah. you will find a way to turn the air back yeah. on if you don't first do the other three steps. Yeah. I can't thank you enough, Nier. I mean, I know I took more of your time. I don't know if you have maybe four more minutes or three more minutes. Sure. I wanted, sure, to, sure. I wanted to bring it all together in that idea of fitness. So you went from overweight, or you said on the border of obese, to the best physical shape of your life. How did you apply those four strategies to get there? Yeah, yeah. So I was full on obese. Uh, I remember going to the doctor and him showing me, you know, here's here's overweight and here's you. You're obese. You're in this red category. And for me, I, I was obese as a child and, and then I lost some weight. And then, But I always struggle with weight my whole life. I always struggle with food. And I think it's part of my fascination into these types of products that persuade us stem from the fact that I struggled with obesity as a child uh, and into early adulthood because I found that these products had controlling powers over me. And I think it was a seminal moment in my life that I learned how to overcome them, how to gain greater control. And to discuss these four steps, I mean, it wasn't until I realized why I was overeating. I knew I was overeating. I knew that McDonald's hamburger was not as healthy as a, as a healthful salad. Who, who doesn't know that? We all know what unhealthy food looks like, but I was eating it anyway. And to be honest, I was eating, not only was I eating things that I knew weren't good for me, I ate too much. Why? Not because I was hungry, but because I was eating my feelings, right? This is why, I mean, if you speak with obese people as, as I used to be, this is what's going on. It's not about hunger. It's about the fact that I would eat when I was lonely. I would eat when I was bored. I would eat when I felt ashamed about how much I had eaten. That's why we overeat right? It's about these feelings, about these uncomfortable emotional states. And if we don't deal with that discomfort first and learn how to deal with the emotional discomfort that we're filling ourselves emotionally with this food, the problem persists. And of course, the same thing applies 
to all sorts of distractions, whether it's drinking too much, whether it's playing too many video games, whether it's watching the news too much, whether it's people who work too much. We all know people who spend way too much time in the office because they are also escaping something. Even exercise, right? I talk about in the book about how people really get addicted to exercise, again, because it becomes an escape from some other discomfort. So it's not about the activity itself. It's not about, oh, this activity is healthy or unhealthy. It's about why we are doing it, to what extent, what are we running away from? So dealing with that internal discomfort, the internal triggers is the absolute most important first step. And then the second step, making time for traction. So for me, I knew I needed to exercise, but it wasn't until for me, what really started me on this path was just planning time for walking. Walking is such an underrated physical activity. People think, oh, it's got to be, you know, no pain, no gain. I have to suffer. No, you don't. <laughs> Going on a walk is, is one of the best things you can do for your physical health. Low impact. You can do it for the rest of your life. You know, there are people who are over a hundred years old who can walk miles and miles. You don't necessarily have to run, but here's why I didn't do it because it wasn't on my calendar. I didn't plan the time for it. So now it has that time and I protect it fiercely because that's something that's very important to my value system. I want to be someone who takes care of their body. So proper exercise, getting to bed on time is a game changer, right? Having a bedtime, super important. And then removing the external triggers, right? So when it comes to losing weight, how many of us have those cookies in the house just in case? <laughs> right? Why did I do that to myself? I would have this stuff in my house. No. So here's the thing. If I want to have unhealthy food, I can have it. I don't tell myself, no, absolutely not. I can't have this food. It's okay. I can have it, but I have to go out and get it. I don't want it right under my nose. I don't want it in my house. I want to remove those external triggers where it counts. In fact, I work in a co-working space here in Singapore, and I intentionally looked for a co-working space without snacks. Coffee machine they have. I don't want one with yeah. snacks, right? Because I don't yeah. want those external triggers. Why would I put myself in that, so you know, with that temptation? Yeah. And then finally, making those pacts, right? Having those promises that we make to ourselves to keep us on track. So if you can find someone to help you be accountable, if you can find a friend, for example, you can make what's called a price pact. Let me give you an example of what I did of using a price pact for myself. So every morning when I wake up, I see the day's calendar in my dresser, okay? I have a calendar and it has the date and on today's date, every date is taped a $100 bill, a fresh, crisp $100 bill. Now, this technique is called the burn or burn technique, and you'll see why in a minute. So every day, there's that $100 bill that I move every day, right? There's one $100 bill that I move for every day of the month. Now, every day, I have a choice to make. I can either go to the gym, take a walk, do a little workout, do something to burn some calories, or above that $100 above the counter, there's a shelf and there's a Bic lighter right there sitting there. Oh, wow. And my choice is to either burn some calories or burn the money. I have to no burn the way. $100 bill. Yes. Wow. That is commitment. Yes. Here's the thing. I've done this for probably been four years now. I've never burned a $100 bill. You know why? Because I do the damn exercise. Yeah. I just do the exercise. Here's one of the most important lessons I can share with people. Consistency over intensity. 
consistency over intensity. The way we live the kind of life we want is not by doing what most people do, which is to go extreme and, and you know, be super intense, right? Like the New Year's resolution. And we know these people who are super fit for like three weeks and then they stop, <laughs> they quit, right? Back yeah. to this problem of quitting. You don't get into good physical shape by being really intense. No, you consistently work out for 30 minutes, an hour, 45 minutes, consistently every single day for years. That's how we get in shape. If you want a good relationship with somebody, you don't go to your daughter and say, hey, you have to spend the next 24 hours with me so we can have a good relationship. No, good relationships are built with consistent interaction. To build a company, to build a, a, a great organization, you have to consistently put in the work, not super intense time, but consistently move the ball forward. So it's all about consistency over intensity. And that consistency requires us to show up and not quit. That's why being indistractable is such an important skill. I will call you master for the rest of my life, <laughs> master Nier. I will say guys, and I know Nier has shared so generously, there is so much more in the book. It's like a well, you know, this is one of the modern day's Bibles. I really, really, really strongly recommend that everyone reads Indistractable. <laughs> it's an incredible piece of work, Nier. You're a brilliant, brilliant, generous man. And I am so honored. I'm so honored to have spoken to you today. I hope we always stay in touch. Are you working on another book? Please be working on another book. I am. I'm trying to figure out which topic. So the way I work is I, I blog about stuff, kind of figure out, I, I, I look for problems in my own life. I know you, you, you think I put all this work into it, but let, let me tell you, I wrote this book, not because I had the answer, but because I was looking for the answer. I needed the answer because I was struggling with this. And that's what I'm looking for for the next book is what problem do I have that I really need to solve? And typically, you know, I'll find somebody else who's written a book and that solves the problem for me. But every once in a while, about every five years, I find a problem that I haven't figured out that I want to dive into. So I'm working on it. <laughs> We are impatiently waiting. Meanwhile, everyone read Indistractable. Renier, I'm so, so, so grateful for your time, for your generous, generous wisdom. It's really amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.